Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. The American Shoreline Podcast Network has been a great uh, project, Tyler. I've enjoyed the hundreds of shows that we've done, but I think this could be the best show we've ever had the chance to record. Uh, Today, we welcome to the podcast Dayton Duncan, who is a producer an author of more than 13 books, a filmmaker, and someone everyone in our audience will know because of his 30 years in association with Ken Burns and the many, many great documentaries that they have produced for uh, PBS. So Dayton Duncan, I really want to just tell you thank you very much for taking time to talk to us about the American Shoreline and the National Parks and all of your work. Uh, it's going to be really a great conversation. Well, it's great to be here. All right. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I had the uh, absolute honor of interning back in the day at Florentine Films, uh, the production company that, that produces these uh, Ken Burns documentaries. And I had the honor of uh, working alongside Dayton and learning about his career and learning about his his method a bit. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to this conversation today. And what spurred this particular uh, interview is the re-airing of the six-episode National Parks America's Best Idea documentary uh, on public broadcasting, which which is... A, a, a factor I think for COVID I think they gave this to us because we were pent up and we needed to kind of escape <laughs> escape the living room so we could good programming so it, it was it, it's been great and I have to say I've been in preparation for this interview I have been watching re-watching uh, this documentary and I have just been thoroughly enjoying it 12 hours of content ladies and gentlemen uh, that is the Ken Burns style I think that that you know you say you take influence from things uh we like to go long too pete so i think that i think that i i've definitely uh yeah take that away but uh we're gonna get into this conversation with dayton in just a minute but first let's have a word from our sponsors the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by lja engineering with 28 offices along the gulf coast The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. 
Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. All right, Dayton, as I said in the intro, uh, what spurred this on is the re-airing of uh, the National Park's America's Best Idea documentary. And I think, why don't you... Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about how this came to be back on again? Is this the is this the result of, of some sort of COVID emergency programming? Well, more or less. I mean, we made this film. It aired. Uh, we worked on it for almost eight or ten years, and it came out in 2009. It's been rebroadcast from time to time on PBS. But because of uh, the COVID and people hunkering down, uh, um, uh, Ken, uh, working with PBS, uh, agreed that they could rebroadcast a, a number of his films, including baseball, for those people who can't go to baseball games, uh, and some others. The Roosevelt's um, was rebroadcast. But then as we were making the turn from late spring into summer, he said, why don't you rebroadcast national parks? As good as our film is, it's not as good as going to a park um in person, I will be the first to admit. Uh, but it does give you both, I think, a, a, a visual sense of the parks, but the film itself is not a travelogue, uh, and it's not necessarily a nature film per se, though there's a lot of nature in it. It is the story of an idea, an idea born in this country, uh, the only place it probably could have been born, that for the first time in human history said that a nation's most spectacular, most magnificent, magnificent, and I would say sacred places should be set aside not for the exclusive use of the rich and the powerful and the nobility and the well-connected, as it had always been, those places, but it should be set aside for everyone and for all time. I think of it as the Declaration of Independence applied to the landscape. And so we follow that idea from its first uh, germs and its first seeds. I shouldn't have used the word germs in these times. <laughs> uh, and uh, follows it through time to about the 1990s. And we see how the idea grew, it evolved, it changed. And also equally, uh, and you get to go to a lot of the places, see the spectacular scenery that we accumulated in those parks. But uh, equally important, you get to meet the people, some you already famous, but many of them not, who are the spark plugs behind how those places got saved uh, for future generations. You know, we tend to think that the national parks have always been there. They haven't. Uh, we tend to think that the national parks are sort of a top down from Washington, D.C. and Congress to the American people. To a certain extent, that's what's required. Congress has to approve and a president has to sign a bill creating a national park. But what we learned is that the spark behind virtually every national park was a person, a couple of people, a couple of groups of people uh, falling in love with a, a place so passionately and so completely that they then set out on what was often a long course and a lot of hard fights to get Congress to do the right thing and set it aside as a national park so that other people who they would never meet in generations they would never know would have the same play, uh, same chance to go to that same place and have that same experience. And that's a just uh, that's a terrific 
story uh, that we wanted to tell because uh, we think it's worth telling. It absolutely is worth telling. And I, I really want to ask about the, just the basic, the, the title of this thing, America's Best Idea. Uh, you refer to it as the Declaration of Independence written into the landscape. I love that. Uh, the United States and America have had a lot of great ideas. Uh, when you guys were putting this together uh, to give it the best idea moniker, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the thinking that went into that? I've got to imagine there was some discussion. Sure. Um, you know, the, we're, we're borrowing that notion from the great, uh, writer and conservationist Wallace Stegner, who wrote that this was the best idea America ever had. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, in my mind, as the person who brought the idea to Ken back in, in a previous century and uh, uh, was working on the research and other things, to me, that was the, that was the key to the whole thing, that this was an idea first. And then it's an idea made manifest in these places that get um, set aside. Now, both Ken and I uh, firmly, uh, it's uh, still July, and on July 4th, the basis of our friendship, I think, was founded 35, 40 years ago, when we both realized that each of us would read the Declaration of Independence aloud to our young children. So... Um, we, we basically believe that the best idea, the, the, the best idea of the continent was expressed in the openings of the Declaration of Independence, that, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal and have the same rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that is how our nation was born. We are still on a long, uh, sometimes halting, uh, still imperfect and not yet finished uh, journey to try to achieve those goals. But that idea was revolutionary in 1776, and is and is you know the best the best idea. And um, one of the historians who speaks on camera in the opening of our film says, "Well, it's not the you know the parks are not the best idea. It's you know the best ideas from Thomas Jefferson." Mm -hmm. And so we admit that up front. What my point is, is that once that idea created the nation, once the nation was created, the nation's best idea, or arguably the best idea, was to take that same impulse of equality uh, for everyone in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and apply it to this incredible continent uh, and natural landscape um, that we inhabit, and so it is. Uh, you know, we can we can you know, argue over drinks and go out and piss fight uh, in the alleyway if someone's got a better idea, a better nominee for best idea. But in in my book, that is uh, arguably America's, our nation's best idea. Once we were founded on the even better idea that all of us are created equal. Well said, Dayton. Uh, I'm curious, as the... I was going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Go ahead. I say it, but, you know, as we were working on it, that was my uh, name for this film um, in the early drafts of the script, and for a while, Ken was just sort of, um, 
you know, reluctant, I think, to have that in the subtitle or the title with the national parks being the subtitle one way or the other, um, simply because of that thing of that I just explained about, you know, are we saying that's a better idea than the Declaration of Independence? And once we had, you know, uh, and we were, you know, several years into the project with different other subtitles being used, and um, I finally, uh, you know, every once in a while I win one, and that one I won. <laughs> Glad you did. That was my best idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it works great, and because it begs this question that we're we're leading this whole discussion off with, like, wow, that's quite a that's quite a claim, but it does get to some. It gets to something quite interesting, but <clears throat> what I find so interesting about uh, the idea itself is that the idea kind of, as you said, it's manifested in these like real things. These like there's a border, as as I've, I believe you described in an interview, to, you know, about the documentary. But like there's a there's a boundary to the park space. It's an actual space. It's manifested in real places that are tangible, and you can go and visit. Uh, but the concept of what it is, I think, has changed. And, and having watched the documentary and, and learned the history, what you the story you tell is that in the initial phases, going back to the 1860s, when Yosemite was was set aside, the these were just like stupendous natural landscapes. And I have to imagine, you know, Dayton, the thought occurred to me when watching your documentary that that John Muir sails to, to San Francisco, and he's looking at this beautiful, I mean, the shoreline of California back then must have been stupendous to be sailing up, and he's, like, not into it. He's going to Yosemite. I mean, that's just how awesome these places are, you know? Um, but I, could you talk a little bit, Dayton, about the, the evolution of the idea and where it started in the very beginning, which I think was kind of a proto-National uh, proto Park concept, through to, I mean, maybe we take it all the way through today where, uh, you know, certainly our concept of the space, I think, has, of these spaces has changed a little bit more, more along the lines of, you know, certainly science driven management. Anyway, talk about that, would you for us? Sure. Uh, you know, first of all, the origins of the idea are like any great idea has many fathers and mothers. Uh, you know, what was the idea behind the Declaration of Independence? Well, there's Enlightenment thinking, different people had written different things, and finally it crystallized under the pen of um, Thomas Jefferson with some editing help by Benjamin Franklin and John Adams into the, those eloquent words that, you know, set the goal for us as a nation. So there were different people, transcendentalists like uh, Emerson and Thoreau, um, George Catlin, uh, an artist traveling up the Missouri River in the 1830s, saw the buffalo herds and their uh, innumerable numbers and wildlife and the native people there and wrote a letter saying, you know, what a magnificent notion it would be to, you know, to preserve these in a magnificent park, a nation's park. Um, so there are different things like that. But basically it happened... You know, as many things happen in the United States, uh, because that's who we are, it was uh, when Yosemite was being set aside, partly it was because there was a company, a steamship company, that thought it would be good for their business of bringing people to California and uh, 
and uh, getting them on their way to uh, to Yosemite. And there were also people like uh, Frederick Law Olmsted who thought that a park, uh, this, you know, is a place that you can restore your mental health. And John Muir, who thought that uh, a, a beautiful place like that, the Sanctum Sanctorum of the Sierra, as he called it, Yosemite Valley, was a place that you could uh, restore your soul and your spirituality. Um, and and it got set aside mainly be, because uh, in Congress they got to, in the midst of the Civil War, <coughs> they saw some actual photographs of how beautiful the place was. Um, and some paintings about how beautiful the place was. And because they could be convinced that it was, quote, had no value, that it was, quote, worthless, that is to say, there weren't any minerals there. Right. And uh, then they said, well, okay, well, let's just set it aside and, and, and save it, then no, no other use can be made of it. And that was sort of a 19th century thought. And the same thing then applied at Yellowstone, Yosemite had been set aside and granted to the state of California to take care of. And then when the same thing happened in Yellowstone, in this case, a railroad was pulling the levers behind Congress. But they're also convinced that it wasn't, there were no valuable minerals and it's too high to farm and all these things. Um, because it was existed in a territory, there was no state to give it to, and so they created what became the world's first national park, Yellowstone. Perfect circumstances. So for, for a while, it was basically, there are these gorgeous landscapes, you know, almost entirely entirely in the West, and people would say, well, let's make this uh, a national park like Yellowstone, and Yosemite became a national park like Yellowstone, and the place where the big trees were, became a national park like Yellowstone, and Mount Rainier became that. Basically, it was based on grandeur and, and scenic beauty. Then other things started uh, you know, to happen. The Everglades got set aside as a protection uh, for different species that would otherwise be endangered in the Everglades swamps, this great nesting ground of a profusion of shorebirds and of alligators and other things that otherwise would have been drained and turned into shopping malls and subdivisions it was set aside to um you know to 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 help those species that was a mm -hmm. new step in the evolution of it in the 1930s um president roosevelt got persuaded that there are historic places that are as important to us of knowing who we are as Americans as some of these grand landscapes. So uh, the National yeah, Park Service was then entrusted with places like the Gettysburg Battlefield yes. or the Statue of Liberty, um, those kind of places that help preserve our past so that it can be passed along to succeeding generations. Um, and over time, uh, science became, uh, and originally it was basically there for the tourists. Uh, and people discovered, the good people of the National Park Service, once it got organized, 50 years after the first national park was set aside, um, that, well, you know, they really shouldn't be feeding bears. Uh, in Yellowstone. That's not good for the tourists sometimes, but it's definitely <laughs> not good for 
for our mission, which is to preserve these landscape and the wildlife in their as close to a natural state as as we can do. And so that science, that management um, became uh, more important. And also uh, later on in the evolution of it, we're not just saving the birthplaces and of uh, presidents and famous people or uh, battlefields uh, to uh, honor, you know, our military heroes, but also places that can remind us of things that are not so savory in our past. So the form, one of the former internment camps of Japanese Americans, Manzanar, got set aside hmm. and preserved forever as a reminder to us that we were capable of doing that and as a as a caution that don't let this happen again. Yeah. Something worth contemplating, for instance, right now. Or the slave quarters of a plantation were set aside as a reminder that, you know, this was this was uh, this was part of what our history is. And only a great nation, both Ken and I believe, would be capable of saying Let's save some of our warts, yeah, or worse than warts. You know, some yeah. of the stains, you know, still on our, uh, uh, on us. You know, slavery and our treatment of native people. You know, the Washita massacre site in Oklahoma, now part of the national park system, hmm. um, and Sand Creek, likewise. Let's save those so they can be, you know, places where future generations can can come and hopefully say, boy, we should never do that again, and with some luck would say, boy, we would we would never do that again. But that's the purpose of it. So it's been this long um, evolution, and I would say, going back to our first discussion, that is exactly the same trajectory that the better idea of the Declaration of Independence has followed. When the Declaration of Independence was written, all men are created equal. You know, they didn't take any follow-up questions, and luckily, um, you know, luckily they left the lofty language, but what if they'd been asked, and the way it was enacted, it was all white men of property debt-free are created equal. Correct. And over time... That has, you know, evolved to then include white men who didn't own property. And then it became, after the Civil War, to include black men. And then after a while, it included, you know, uh, women. And after a while after that, it included the very first people who ever inhabited this continent. The Native Americans were finally, in I think 1920-something, officially declared as citizens of, of the United States. And in our pursuit of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, you know, those definitions are always disputed, argued about, and worked on as this, uh, as we move through time. And the very same thing happened mm-hmm. with the national park idea. Well, it's the great American conversation, I think, the dialogue that has uh, framed and driven uh, the history of the country since its beginning. What I, what I love about the work that you do and Ken Burns and the whole crew uh, is the sweep of the nation's history that you encounter and digest and explain in the most beautiful, of course, ways. 
but you're right. It includes the greatest ideas, the national parks, baseball, but also some of the most controversial historical events, the Civil War, which was, of course, I can't add anything to the spectacular reviews that that has changed uh, people's understanding of the country, uh, the Vietnam films. Um, Dayton, when you look at the body of work over 30 years that you've done with Ken Burns and PBS, uh, the author of 13 books about this amazing country that we are part of, um, what do you think a historian or a filmmaker uh, 30 years from now is going to be pulling out of the events of the early 2020s, what would be the documentary frame for the moment that we're in right now? <laughs> well, you know, we just finished this film on uh, country music that I wrote and produced, Ken directed uh, and produced. Uh, Loved it. And our story, we very deliberately ended our narrative storytelling 20 years ago, around 1996. The reason we did this is because we are historians. We're not journalists, although I once was one, co covering now, and we certainly aren't fortune tellers. So what history requires is a space of time, about 20 years or a generation, to be able to look back and sift through all the things that were happening and discern what it was that was significant and what, what it was that was lasting. So, um, yeah. so you know, I would have, you know, and that's an important perspective that we've kept on virtually all the films that we did that, um, you know, that do take you through time, through jazz and baseball, the original baseball film, you know, didn't take right up to the current moment. Um, and uh, we didn't do that, uh, obviously, with uh, country music and other things. So... Um, because I, I, I'll just use this, continue this analogy. You know, if we had brought the country music uh, film up to up to to the now of the time we were making it, we would have to be deciding, you know, which artist for every artist that we portrayed, for every song that we highlighted, for every moment that we stopped to pay more attention to. There were 20, 30, 40 other artists, other yeah. songs, other moments that we couldn't tell. We had to make really hard choices and try to, in crafting a narrative, to, to and that's why we take as long as we do, right. is to work on the thing, is, is this song's got to stand for something, or this artist and what uh, he or she is going to, you know, need to be part of this larger history versus just a list. So you really can't tell. So, so you know, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have opinions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> just, I'm not sure my opinion at this moment, uh, particularly in, in, in looking ahead, uh, would, uh, you know, would be uh, that, you know, yeah. wise. Well, you're, you know, you're modest. But it, but, yeah. it's, it's very clear that, um, you know, uh, it, it's very clear that, for instance, if you're looking at our politics, that if you're looking back in the first two decades of the 21st century, yeah. 
the first African American president would, you know, yeah, well, would, uh, you know, obviously ipso facto a headline be be something that you'd want to do. The fact that he was then replaced by a former reality show character uh, who, yep. you know, was uh, who had claimed falsely that the first African-American president was not born in this country and was a Muslim. Yeah. That'd be a little hard to... To uh, avoid. To avoid <laughs> yeah. as well. Uh, you know, that contrast between those two uh, people and that, that and those and the two administrations that they led uh, I think would be uh, yeah would be unavoidable side the by fact side we're going through a pandemic right now uh, you know if, if you were in the 1920s and say well what do you think we'll be saying about the teens I think you. I think it'd be pretty obvious that you would say, "Well, I think World War One. I, I think I think the World yeah. War because they didn't know it was just one. They didn't know it was the first World War. Right, the war to end all wars. Uh, the, they thought the World War obviously is a huge story, and the fact that huge swaths of the United States and throughout the world are dying of this influenza. That's a big, you know, that's <laughs> a big, significant story to tell so i, I think you yeah. know, we're living through fairly extraordinary times uh you know in that respect although there are no ordinary times as someone has has said and I'm, i'll just repeat it there are no ordinary times and there are no ordinary people but these are uh these are very extraordinary times in terms of the health crisis and in terms of our politics and to the extent of whether we'll know a lot better in late November um, whether you know I, I personally I'm now yeah. I'm sort of away from being looking at things historically but I, I my own personal belief as a firm believer as you've never heard me you know pontificate on or preach about of this journey of this idea of what America is that also gets expressed in the parks, but, but basically the firm belief in that expression of who we are, what separate, what separates us is this experiment in democracy. Yeah. Right now I've just finished writing a film that we're now moving into editing on Benjamin Franklin. And the founders, you know, all of them knew this is an experiment in democracy. That was also a first. No one ever done this, right? The people are in charge. Right. That was radical. Very. And, and uh, idealistic. And at the same time, they were both idealists and because they had studied their history so much, seen the fall of, of a Greek experiment in democracy, you know, thousands of years earlier. The Roman Senate, as it got taken over by a dictator, you know, they, they were both idealistic, but they were very hard-headed. And they saw this yeah. experiment as an experiment um, in self-governance that it wasn't necessarily going to be automatic. A democracy, if you, could, you can keep it, I think. Of, was, uh... of people for it to succeed. And it just as it requires 
good leadership to nurture it. And, you know, talk to me in late November and I'll yeah, we'll see how I think the experiment's going. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard not to look at the work that you guys have done and see this transcendent hope in the midst of the most difficult issues the country has faced, whether you're looking at the Civil War or you're looking at Vietnam, or even if you're looking at baseball in the integration of baseball or in jazz, these stories are rich with tragedy um, as well as triumph. Um, All good stories, you know, need. And you guys, I don't know how you pull these stories together. The complexity and the breadth of them is so just overwhelming, but... Um, the thing that you talk, when you mentioned about the national park system is that they, they really, this idea derived from these passionate people who fell in love with these places and they would, they would do this for decades. The stories of people, the establishment of these parks, Muir's effort and Yosemite. advocates. Yeah. It's, it's in, you know, there's something very hopeful and, um, you know, I've got to say that in this moment, I'm, in our and I know that these are retrospective films and that you really can't size them up in in real time. But uh, I've got to believe that that individual drive, that passion, that commitment to the best idea, um, the inalienable rights that we all share, uh, perseveres here. But I'm got to. Is it just me, or I'm I'm feeling it's a little shaky? Are are you feeling that the Enlightenment underpinnings of these ideas, these notions, this commitment is in a shakier position now than it has been historically, or is this sort of run-of-the-mill America? Well, I guess I'd have um, two thoughts about that. Um, the first is is that, as our many of our films show, uh, while on the one hand there has been what we would oftentimes say is progress, you know, the integration of baseball that leads the integration of almost everything else actually began with the integration of, of, of the army. But, you know, that that, that moved things forward a, a little bit. Ken and his daughter Sarah right now doing um, a series about Muhammad Ali. It's mm-hmm. a story of this fascinating character who was also you know, uh, you know, one of the greatest prize fighters, heavyweight prize fighters ever. Yeah. But it's not just that story, right? It's the story of him and his place in a society that itself was changing. Um, just as the film on Jack Johnson, a African-American prize fighter, you know, uh, places that in its own perspective, you know, uh, with, with the parks, uh, well, there are other times, a film on Huey Long. There was a time in the 1930s when, you know, there were reasonable people who thought that the United States could very well become like Germany, like Italy, like other places uh, because of the economics uh situation, uh, easy prey to be taken over, perhaps have, have democracies taken over and become dictatorships. Yeah. And there were political characters and uh, media characters 
you know, who were very powerful um, in terms of the attention they got and then the followers that um, that they led. And But we didn't, right? We had Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who himself was an imperfect man, but thank, thank us, you know, thank goodness for his being there in the Oval Office uh, and at the twin crises of the uh, Depression and the World War, the Second World War. Um, and I guess so my point is this, is that what we learn from that, that uh, from the past, is how that it's never easy. You know, creation of a national park has never been easy and automatic. It's always been tough. And you're not guaranteed that you're going to succeed. So in this experiment that we're in, that's why the, partly because Franklin himself was a scientist of great skill, you know, he saw it in those terms, an experiment. An experiment is you try something, and if something starts not working right, then you got to, you know, work it a little bit and try to make it better. Is it right? is it fair but, to say... That's what, that's what this journey that we've embarked on on July 4, 1776, is all about. Can people be entrusted with governing themselves? Hmm. That is the question. And that is still a question, as it always would be. When, when the you know, uh, everyone probably listening knows this anecdote now because it came up so many different times in Congress recently. But as they left the Constitutional Convention in 1789, taking the you know the statement of the Declaration, which was a statement of human rights and of freedom from tyranny. And now, having won the battle for independence, they were now saying, "Okay, well, how's this, how, how are we going to set this government up?" And they argued about that, and different people had different I- ideas. Maybe the maybe the president should be president for life. They decided, you know, I think wisely, no, it shouldn't. You know, uh, how does how does this how does the mechanism of this work? Uh, but. They, they did it uh, in behind closed doors and closed windows in what we now call Independence Hall and mm-hmm. because they wanted to have the freedom to talk and not, you know, not be distracted uh, and not get not to frighten everybody that there was so much dissension uh, <laughs> about what it was going to be. But when they finally had done it, Benjamin Franklin gave one of the best speeches of his life talking about, you know, this constitution that we've done, um, you know, there are parts of it, you know, that I, I don't think are good, but, but in, I'm not sure we're capable of doing anything better. Hmm. And I'm old enough, and I've seen myself be wrong enough to also wonder, maybe this is the best that we can do. Wow. You know, but... We need to, I urge everybody to pass it because the failure to pass this Constitution in the fragile state of our young democracy would probably end this experiment right now. And, uh, but there are provisions in this that we can make it better as we go on. We see mistakes or failings or, uh, things that need to be taken out or things that need to be added back in. 
we have a mechanism for doing that, right? And as they walk out of the closed uh, hall, a prominent uh, woman of Philadelphia, a Mrs. Powell, came up to him and said, well, Dr. Franklin, what is it that you have given us? Meaning, you know, what kind of government, uh, you know, are you proposing? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Yeah. And that if you can keep it is the, the thing. So we're in a, you know, we are in a if you can keep it moment. And those moments have arisen in the past and we got through them. And so the question for us is, um, we're in that moment and do we have it in us to, um, you know, to rise above it and, and, uh, and keep marching forward? You know, and like I say, so my view of the, of, of American history is that we generally have, you know, um, yeah, we're here, but doesn't mean that it's always, you know, but, but there've been lots of instances where we failed our, our, our mission. This one is a little more profound in a certain sense, which is the issue is, can you keep the Republic or not versus can you expand rights to people who hither to haven't had them or not, uh, delay the, delay the, you know, the march toward equality a little bit longer. This is, this is one where, you know, the whole enterprise, the experiment, is really going to be put to a test. No doubt, Dayton. Uh, and I guess I'll just reiterate that we have something to look forward to, ladies and gentlemen. There's a, an upcoming doc. When is this uh, documentary slated to be released? Well, we got a whole bunch in the works. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Sam uh, finished writing one on uh, the Kenstern on... Benjamin Franklin, there's one on Muhammad Ali, uh, there is a film um, in production as well about the American Revolution that will come out on the you know, uh, 250th anniversary of, uh, of the Revolution, a film about LBJ and the Great Society, he having already been covered on the other part of his ledger, uh, not 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 the best part of his ledger, the <laughs> Vietnam War. Right. Uh, I'm uh, right now doing research on a film that, for uh, I don't know, quarter of a century, I've been niggling uh, Ken to do, and he finally agreed uh, to do it, which is a history of the American buffalo and uh, wow. Incredible saga of are we capable? Are we which basically are we uh, we Americans? Are we capable of taking a mag the most magnificent animal on our continent, the bison, which existed in the tens of millions? <coughs> yeah. Are we capable of extinguishing them? Yes, we are. And the answer by the 1880s was, you betcha. <laughs> but then. Uh, and so a lot of people sort of know the outlines of, of that story, which we will tell and hopefully tell in greater detail and um, more powerfully than perhaps it's been told before. But the second half of the film is the lesser-known story. Are we also the people that could could pull back from the brink and save it from extinction? And the answer to that is also yeah. yes. 
and the cast of characters who are involved in that are as diverse and as interesting and colorful as the various people, you know, you know, who help create national parks. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward Can't to Can't wait. It's a, you know, it's a parable for our time. Dayton, I freaking love you, man. <laughs> it's, that is great well, it's stuff. The, it's that thread of the yeah. thread of what we do and the decisions we make. And then the hope and the transcendence. I mean, this right. is the yin-yang of America. Well, Dayton, I know we're running uh, short on time, but um, I had highlighted the way that you chose to end, to conclude the National Parks documentary, episode six. Uh, you told a really personal story about uh, your family and yeah. your experience as a, a young man uh, touring the parks and then returning with your children and i was i think it would be appropriate here uh to conclude if, with with that story one more time uh if you if you would do that for us uh sure you know when i, I grew up in a little town of iowa and um my family you know both my parents work we didn't take vacations per se uh but when i was uh just before i turned 10 years old um they decided we would, our family, my older sister and me, um, we're going to go on a family vacation for the first time. We borrowed my grandmother's car. We borrowed some camping equipment from some friends, family friends, and we headed west. And we went to places like the Badlands, and we went to places like Devil's Tower, and we went to places like the Battle of Little Bighorn National uh, Memorial, and to Yellowstone, and to... Um, the Grand Tetons and the Dinosaur National Monument. You know, I, 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 like many American males, my dad, you know, didn't like to linger places when you're on the road, you know. <laughs> you know I, my father was the same, that generation. Going, right? Yeah, uh, you had to stay on a schedule. Of, a lot of places. It was, you know, as I look back on that moment now, I didn't come back from that uh, thing you know, just before I turned 10 and say, you know, when I grow up, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write about these, you know, it opened my eyes to a whole different world, both of lands of American landscape and of American history. And I realize now that much of my adult life, whatever it is that I am, of writing books or making films, has been to traverse this great continent and to explore its landscapes and and its people and its and its history and you know I think it pretty much probably has to come back to that. Well, when I when we were just getting started on the National Parks film, um, one of my quote jobs was to go to all the parks and um, meet the people. Uh, who take care of them and find out from them the story behind that park and other people that we might want to talk to. And we wrapped that into a, a, an epic family trip that took us to uh, start in Montana and took us to Glacier National Park yeah. and to the Bitterroot, uh, the, the Bitterroots of Idaho along the Lewis and Clark Trail and to the uh, battle site of the, of, little, of, of the Big Hole in Montana site of the massacre and to Yellowstone and to uh, the 
Grand Tetons and to Dinosaur National Monument, and then down into the southwest parks of uh, Arches and Canyonlands and uh, Capitol Reef and the Grand Canyon. It was a majestic wow. thing, but you know, uh, the, here the, the 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 thing about uh, the thing about this is we realized when we were making the film. I told Ken, you know, we can tell the history well. We can get the cinematography, but we also have to get into, you know, when you mentioned anybody, I'm doing a film about the national parks. One of the first things you say, oh well, I remember this, right? It, it's all personal mm -hmm. and that is that is part of the glory of the national parks that imperishable memories get created there whether you're there with a, on a family trip or not but particularly i suppose if you're there with a family when we were at on the first trip when i was nine we camped at a place called jenny lake in grand teton national park looked across jenny lake at this just uh, just this astonishingly beautiful rampart of the Tetons. Yeah. And for years, for the rest of her life, my mother would get a little teary talking about that view and say it was the most beautiful view she'd ever seen wow. in her life. So, you yeah. know, 50 years later or 45 years later, um, I'm there with my young, my wife and, and my daughter, who's the same, who's named for my mother, and her younger brother, the same age difference between my big sister and me. Wow. And so we're standing there on the shores of Jenny Lake, you know, and yeah. I'm holding my daughter's hand. We're looking out across, and it looked exactly as I remembered it, you know. Yeah. And that moment, time both collapsed and exploded for me because I could still, you know, I'm standing there and in my part of me is a nine-year-old boy with his mom. And part of me is a 50-some-year-old dad and his daughter in the same place, yep. looking at the same view. And part of me could sort of time could explode even farther and I could imagine a time when I wouldn't be there but she'd be there with one of her children hopefully it's still being unchanged that's what the national parks can do they can they can I felt that that's that's the closest brush to eternity that I can imagine for me personally yes is to feel that you know uh, just going through the touch of our hands and the view of what we had and seeing generations before and generations to come. Continuity. Enraptured by this view. And so the, the parks give you this great place where you can create these, you know, imperishable memories. And when you come back, you know, they're still there waiting for you. Man. And, you know... You know, so maybe that's, that's, I, that's, if that's not America's best idea, uh, <laughs> connecting you to the land and to your history, but also connecting you to the people you love, and you know, yeah, write write Ken a letter to tell him what the alternative. Well, is. I the, the best idea, <laughs> you know, that you that is absolutely the answer to the question: is it? And it is 
the richness of exactly the foresight that went into this, the richness of the idea, where it originates, how it springs forward in time. I don't know. I come away every time I watch the work that you guys do, and I feel optimistic about my Can country. Can we do concluders on this pod? Yeah. Um, I would, yeah. Dayton, if you just have a couple minutes, we have a, a semi-tradition. We don't do it every pod where we do a little <laughs> sure. concluding thought. Um, I have mine. Go ahead. Do you have a concluder? Uh, I'll give you, you think of yours while I do mine. Dayton, think of your concluder. It takes okay. a minute. But my concluder is that uh, it's about this experimental attitude that we have. And when I apply this, when I asked Dayton to come on the pod, he's like, I don't understand how this connects to coasts. I read like, I'll do it. <laughs> and I, and thank you, uh, Dayton for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. But the, the truth is that we're, it is a huge experiment. And I think that when we, I, we get, we've, we've become kind of locked in. And I think this COVID moment has shaken us free a little bit. And we, I think we're realizing that we have to re-engage in the experiment and, and that it is an experiment, in fact, and that, it, in the, that de the destiny of, our, of these places, the national parks, also spaces like our shorelines that, you know, when you're talking about that personal connection, Peter, when we started Coastal News Today and ASPN, by the way, Dayton, we were watching this documentary on that retreat in yeah, California. We yeah. And we were thinking about that toddler who toddles in on the beach into the ocean and experiences the majority space of the planet for the first time. Yeah. It's primitive. It, is pr it, it strikes you at your core. And there's something in us that says we need to protect spaces that do that. Yeah. And I think that for whatever reason, Muir sailing around the California shoreline got me thinking about this. But we've overlooked the coastal space really, and, and not entirely. I mean, there's, of course, national seashores. We have set aside some areas. But our general treatment of the space is more like Niagara Falls than <clears throat> like yeah. the national seashore. Uh, we are exploiting it not for minerals necessarily, but for tourism, for recreation, things like that. And I do think that we have a reckoning ahead of us as we as we look at risk, this new era of climate change and sea level rise, sea level rise all of this, I think, is coming to a head and we need to keep it experimental. It's OK to throw some crazy ideas out there, ladies and gentlemen, which which I do all the time. I'm <laughs> super guilty of that. But uh I really am coming away with that. That's my concluding thought. The experimental, uh, the essential element of the fact that it is constantly evolving. It's a constant experiment. That's mine. Dayton, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I don't know how conclusory this is, uh, but what you were saying, you know, reminded me of an uh, uh, interconnected thing. Uh, the first thing is that who we are as a people and our history and the system of government that we've tried to establish is an experiment and it's always a challenge. And that we sometimes get into, you know, a sad state to think, oh, it's all, you know, it's all on autopilot. It's never on autopilot. No. It is always requires vigilance persistence, dedication, 
and if you also have it, passion to, you know, to, to have the Republic and keep it. The other part of it is that, is that, uh, we have to be, be aware of, of the threats that face us and climate change is certainly not just a, a great challenge for our country, but for the planet itself. In the Everglades, if you've ever gone there, um, they have a, if you're driving down the main, the, you know, the principal road that penetrates into the Everglades going from, you know, you know, around through different parts of what is basically a very large, you know, estuary swamp. There's a place that it says it's the highest point in Everglades National Park, and they, uh, Park Service, uh, sort of jokingly put up a little sign saying, mm-hmm. Rock, uh, Rock Pass. <laughs> so what about elevation three feet? <laughs> three feet. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that tells you a lot. That, you that tells you, you a lot. You, you, you can chuckle. You, I, I always chuckle when I go over it, but yeah. in these times, you think, unless we do something, Three feet's not a lot, you know. The, the yeah. Everglades, the the all of the Everglades, along with Miami and another place. Right. I'm not Key West. Lost of the Everglades as a national park mm-hmm. would be worse than all the coastal communities that would also uh, succumb to it. But the national parks, uh, another unintended role that they play now is they are the canary canaries in the coal mine. So there's the Everglades. There's my favorite national park, Glacier National Park, which because it was so beautiful, because the railroad got there soon and they pushed for making it into a national park, there have been photographs taken there of the glaciers, particularly one called Grinnell Glacier, named one of the heroes who helped create the national park, since the 1890s. And you can walk down a hallway in one of the hotels that has a view of, of Grinnell Glacier and see over the course of 120 years the retreat of that glacier. And the day is not too far distant. Yeah. And it may be that it's too late to reverse this, but the date is not too long distance when Glacier National Park will have the distinction of not having any glaciers left. There's Joshua Tree National Park because of the change of the, of the climate and winters are not uh, quite what they once were, maybe out of Joshua Tree at some point. So the the parks, you know, have all these other, these transcendent um, benefits to us as human beings. They have this uh, shining light of what democracy can do at its best for us. But they can also, you know, they also can teach us things and be warnings to us. You know, we created the national parks at a time in the 19th century when the impulse was just to to overtake the continent and Exploit to commodify it, it all. Yeah. But the national parks were the places 
the few places that we at least um, you know got up the gumption to say no not here we're not doing that here and that's what's that's that that's what saved them for future generations what they are telling us now is watch out yeah do something or something much bigger than just this park is in peril Oof. You know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Dayton Duncan, producer, writer with Florentine Films, author of more than 13 books, one of the great filmmakers and writers, producers with Ken Burns. Uh, When we put the perspective and the history of our nation uh, in the hands of talented people who can explain it and explore it and understand it, I I think we all gain. And Dayton, just to thank you for sharing your perspective on the country where we are, where we've been. Uh, I think, yeah, the results of the experiment are never fully in. Uh, we run it over and over again, and, and uh, it takes a lot of courage to face the, the transitions that the country has faced through its history. And uh, I think everybody out there with the pandemic, the reinvigoration of our social relationships and racial relationships in the country, where we are politically, uh, thoughtful, insightful uh, views like yours are really appreciated. And I thank you very much for being on the American Shoreline Podcast. All right. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'm heading for the windward side In all of the dreams Sometimes it just seems that I'm 